Vacations. They're supposed to be a time for relaxation, fun, and trying new things. Well, what happens when a vacation goes wrong? Join us around the campfire as we share two stories of vacations that did not go as planned. Yay, it's our first episode. I'm Allison. And I'm Sarah. And this is Two Girls Around a Campfire. So who wants to go first? Do you want to go first or should I? I think I'm going to let you go first. Woo. Okay. So my story is about the Rogers, the mom, Joanne, and she's two teenagers, Michelle and Christy, who were 17 and 14. And they were on vacation headed to Florida from Ohio. Now, this was their first ever family vacation. They live on a dairy farm. Apparently, if you're a dairy farmer, you never get to take a vacation. They managed to leave uh, their husband, her husband, at home. So he was taking care of everything. So they leave Ohio on Friday, May 26th. They had about a week to enjoy their vacation before the unthinkable happens. They had a camera with them, and as they vacationed around Florida, they went to the zoo and Epcot and SeaWorld, and they took tons of pictures. They didn't know that they were leaving behind a series of snapshots that investigators would eventually pour over and study for a long time. That Thursday evening, and this is a quote from, his name was Kevin French, and he actually wrote a seven-part series on this case called Angels and Demons, and that won him the Pulitzer Prize, and I just loved this quote so that's why I quoted it that Thursday evening they shot one more picture it was the last snapshot on the last roll of film discovered in their room taken from the balcony outside room 251 with the camera pointed towards the bay it shows a cluster of palm trees silhouetted against a glowing evening sky sometime after they snapped that picture the three of them left the days in and got into the car and drove toward the horizon they had just glimpsed from the balcony they had an appointment to keep Joe had written the directions on a piece of paper, and now she and the girls were on their way. They would not see the sun again. Whoa, that's good. Right? I just love it. His whole series is like that. Like, it's it's so terrible. Okay. okay. Well, yeah, keep going. So three days later, on Sunday, June 4th, the bodies of all three women were found tied and weighed down in Tampa Bay. Each woman was naked from the waist down. Their arms and legs were bound and a cinder block was tied by a rope around their necks. The medical examiners determined the cause of death to be asphyxiation, but they couldn't determine if it was because they had drowned or if they had been strangled by the ropes around their neck. The youngest daughter, Christy, had managed to work one of her hands out of the rope. So the husband they left behind in Ohio, Hal, was getting worried, and he is just losing his mind. He has no idea what to do. They were supposed to be home by Sunday, and now it's Tuesday. Nobody's heard from them. He's called all of their family and friends. He's called the local highway patrol trying to find out if there was a car accident. So finally on Wednesday, June 7th, he reports them missing and he attempts to go and find a private plane and a pilot that will fly him from Ohio to Florida so he can look at the highway to see if he can find a car accident because that's what he assumes happens to them, that they had gotten a car accident on their way home and they were stuck somewhere. Oh, also, I didn't mention, this was 1989, so nobody has okay. cell phones. Sorry. Yeah, I was just, just going to ask you what year this was. <laughs> yes. Sorry. I remembered I read the month, but not the year. Yeah, so 1989, nobody has cell phones. They, and a few days before they disappeared, he hadn't heard from them either. 
So that was normal for a couple days to go by. On Thursday, June 8th, the housekeeping staff at the Days Inn um, went up to the manager to tell them that the room 251 had not been used for days. There was still suitcases and personal belongings there, but the beds had never been slept in and the shower hadn't been used. The manager calls the, the police to report the guest missing. And then the police were able to match prints from the room with the bodies found in the bay to confirm that they were in fact Joe and her two daughters. Then they went searching. They couldn't find the car for almost a week and a half. Then they finally found it um, next to a boat ramp a couple miles down the bay from where their bodies were found. Inside the car, they found a brochure with the directions on it, parts of which were written in a handwriting other than Joe's. And there was also able to get fingerprints off of it, but they didn't have anybody that matched up. And like I said, this was still 89, so their fingerprint database wasn't as extensive as it is now. Investigators realized that there were similarities between these murders and the rape of a woman in a nearby area. Her name was Judy Blair, and she met a man at Tampa Bay, and he offered to take her on a sunset cruise. And once they got out into the open water, he raped her. And she says the only reason she survived is because he knew that she had friends waiting for her on the dock to come right back. So she was able to describe him to police and they made a composite drawing based on her description and they put that in the paper along with stories about her rape and the murders. She also told them that he had a blue boat with a white interior. It had a yellow Volvo motor and that he drove a dark like Jeep or Bronco. They've got a description kind of, but they just have no idea how to narrow it down. But this woman, she, she never reported her sexual assault when it happened? No, it happened after the murders. Oh, it happened after. Okay. Yeah. Oh. So when she came forward, they were like, hmm, maybe that's what happened to the, the other women. Interesting. Okay. So Tampa resident Joanne Steffi realized that the sketch of the rape suspect resembled her neighbor, Oba Chandler. Uh, but the task force investigating the murders were completely flooded with tips. And it took more than a year before they would start focusing on Chandler. Oh, wow. That's um, frustrating. Right? That's, it's terrible. And also, they did, they might have been on America's Most Wanted, but I know for sure they were on Unsolved Mysteries twice. And so, of course, every time they were on a show, the phone lines would just blow up. So then... Thursday, May 14th, 1992, three years later, they posted the flyer that they found in the car that had that extra handwriting on it. They went and finally published that in the newspaper. And that same woman, Joanne Steffi, says that totally looks like my neighbor's handwriting. And she had proof. So she had had him come out to repair the fence around her house. So she had a contract and a check that he had signed on the back. Also, about this same time, it was the first time in history that the criminal justice system used billboards. So they put up pictures of Joe and her kids and then a picture of that handwriting sample. And so since then, we've seen, especially with missing persons, they use billboards a lot now. But that was the first time that they'd ever done it then. But also, there goes a ton more tips again. 
since they put it up. Steffi and her sister were so upset by the lack of police response to their now multiple tips that she refaxed them the contract and she wrote this cover letter, which I just thought was, she's the shit. Here is another copy of Oba Chandler's handwriting and on the back of his check is his driver's license number. Although I'm sure you received numerous samples of handwriting, many of us are convinced that this handwriting is the same as the one published in the papers. We feel so strongly that they are one and the same that due to your lack of response, we were tempted to pursue this with a handwriting expert of our own. However, due to Commissioner Todd's new personal interest, we have recontacted you. We expect a response to this information as soon as possible. Thank you for your assistance. Yeah. Right? And right? she's like, I know. I've been trying to tell you guys and you're not listening. So Friday, July 31st, a detective finally comes to their house to get that original contract. They disappeared in 89. It's been three years. I just, I just think of that, of the husband, like I can't even imagine if something happened to my spouse and, or my children, and this is just going to get dragged on for years. Like, yeah, I'd be losing my mind. Yeah. And the poor thing, he's still at home on their dairy farm, trying to keep it going, trying to live like he did before knowing that his wife and kids were murdered and the cops are doing God knows what. And also, this is Florida, and he lives in Ohio, so it's not even like he can be involved, you know how sometimes they do, because he's so far away. All right, so now that we're finally looking at Chandler, they learned that his old house was on Dalton Avenue, which is only two miles from the boat ramp where Joe and the girl's car was parked, and at the time, state records showed he owned a 21-foot Bayliner boat with a blue exterior and a white interior. And at the time, he was also the registered owner of a dark blue Jeep Cherokee. Furthermore, he had a long criminal record and had been charged with everything from kidnapping to burglary to armed robbery to counterfeiting. And so apparently this was before the three strikes law, right? I was like, you got convicted of all of that and you're just out there living your life. Like, that's crazy. So they're all sitting around going over all this evidence they have of him. And one of their office assistants speaks up and she goes, I don't know if you guys noticed this or not, but this guy's driver's license photo matches the composite from three years ago. So they hadn't even noticed that, even though they knew they were trying to compare them. So yeah, this poor little secretary lady's like, guys, it's the same fucking picture. Like, (laughs) yeah, in all of their rush and trying to, you know, narrow down their tips, nobody had thought to look and compare the like, seemingly super obvious look at the picture of the composite look at his driver's license so when they looked at it they were like yeah this is the guy oba chandler had been in trouble with the law since he was a boy he's one of those career criminals he was a con man um he had a ton of aliases fictitious identities a prison record um he had a history of sometimes disturbing and violent behavior towards women he had joined the marines but uh he just deserted Sometime afterward, decided, nope, that's not for me. He'd been married so many times that they're not even exactly sure how many. Because with all, yeah, with all his aliases and fake identities, they are like, we don't even know. And he had eight children with seven different women. 
Okay, can I ask a question here? Do you, sure. how, how old was he like at the time of the murders? I want to say he's like 40. Okay, okay. So he's, he's not too young, but that was also part of how they caught him because they knew that the way he was able to take care of three victims at once and control the scene, it must not have been his first crime or murder. He'd, he'd been experienced. So they knew they were looking for someone a little bit older. So when he was 10, his father hanged himself in the basement. And by age 14, he was stealing cars. He was arrested 20 different times as a juvenile. As an adult, he was charged with a long list of crimes, like I said, including possession of counterfeit money, loitering and prowling, burglary, kidnapping, and armed robbery. And once he was accused of masturbating while peering inside a women's window, and another time, this is like the weirdest thing. I don't understand. He received 21 wigs that were stolen from a beauty parlor. <laughs> right? I was like, what the hell were you going to do with them? I mean, are wigs expensive? Yeah, especially back in the 80s. Like if they were a good wig. So yeah, maybe that's how he was making money. I'm not sure. So they sent his handwriting sample to an analyst. And it was confirmed that it matched the directions that were written on the brochure. They compared his prints from his prison and probation records against the ones found on the brochure. And they actually had found a palm print on the brochure and it matched his right hand. He was arrested on September 24th, 1992, um, which was, like I said, more than three years. That's like three and a half years after they were murdered. While he's in jail, he likes to brag and he tells multiple people about how he murdered people and how he raped them and he could do whatever he wanted. And also it came out during his trial that once they did that newspaper article with the rape and the murder and his composite picture, he actually left Florida for about six months and he went and stayed with his daughter. Now, I don't know how their relationship was. But while he was there, he told her that he was running from Florida to escape persecution from the cops in a murder rape case. And then a few months later, he told um, her husband that he had murdered people. So both of these people know at the very least, he's at least running from the cops and didn't say anything. But you also have to think about like, obviously, this guy is off his fucking rocker right For like sure. there's been a lifetime of trauma you can only assume that his family was you know just as traumatized i'm sure like i said he had eight kids with seven moms so i'm sure he wasn't around really for any of them and who knows he might have scared them enough to be like oh shit well, and somebody like this is going to be a master, like you said, he's a con man. So he's going to be a master manipulator. He's going to be able to spin the story, make himself out to be the victim. Yeah, it's nuts. So he goes to trial. The jury literally took a vote as soon as they got in the back. And they said, okay, how do you vote? Five minutes in to their deliberation, everybody votes him guilty. There's no question. And then it took them a half an hour to decide that he deserved the death penalty. So Judge Susan Schaefer handed out that sentence on November 4th, 1994. And she said that he was probably the vilest, most evil defendant she had ever handled. 
So he is in prison for 17 years. And on November 15th, 2011, he was executed. His last meal, which is so boring, but whatever. It was two salami sandwiches on white bread with mustard. And then he had half a peanut butter and grape jelly sandwich on white bread and drank coffee. So he requested no spiritual advisor and had no visitors at his execution. Also something that they found really interesting, he did not have a single visitor his entire 17 years in prison. None of his family even went and filled out. Yeah. And none of his family even went and filled out paperwork to be allowed to visit. Everybody had just been like, nope, we're done. And he was married when he got arrested and he had like a two-year-old and he was still like, oh, well, I don't care about other people's children. So in February of 2014, they were going back through cold cases, like I said in my Q&A, and they were looking at the asphyxiation death of a woman from November of 1990. They had DNA from her case in 1990. But it was a very tiny sample so that back then, if they had tried to test it, they would have used the whole sample. So instead, they put it away to wait for DNA abilities to catch up and to become more sophisticated. And somehow it managed to not degrade in the 15 years since they had put it away. And when they ran the DNA, it was from Chandler. So he had raped and killed her as well. So he's officially charged, well, he was already dead, but with the murder and rape of four women and then that rape of the other woman. And nobody knows how many others as they go through and do more cold cases in Florida. Who knows what will show up. So that was Oba Chandler. That's insane. And I, I think sometimes, like, when I'm hearing these stories, I, especially if it's, like, a really intense crime like obviously raping and killing three women in the same night at the same time kind of thing like that feels just like an enormous crime and then my mind automatically goes to like okay well that's the worst crime somebody could do so like they stop (laughs) you know like not you know it's strange to think that yeah there he's being investigated for this one crazy crime but then he's still out there well, and you know, he, he still had years before they found him and he's still doing these horrible things. And exactly. So he left in 89 when they did that composite photo. But then not even a year later, he's back in Florida killing again. So obviously it was some kind of compulsion slash he didn't care. He was just going to do what he wanted and didn't matter who he hurt. I would be interested in if you had found any information about him traveling outside of Florida. I mean, did he always live in Florida? Like, do you think that there's cases in other parts of the country or in other states that could be tied to him? Probably because his daughter lived out of state, at least one of them. So that's where he went when he left. So I wonder if when he was there for six months, if he did something there, but he did mostly just live in Florida. But like you said, with all those children, they could have spread out if he even visited them here or there. You never know. Interesting. Interesting case. Good one. All right. What's your story for us? Okay. So today I'm going to be talking to you about the Corky sisters. These were two American sisters. They were in their late 30s, early 40s. 
they were best friends. They spent a lot of time together and they even were in the same career path. So both of them were in the financial industry. One of them lived in Denver, Colorado, and I believe she worked for Charles Schwab. Her sister lived in Chicago and was also in the financial sector in Chicago. So they have been described as just like really fun loving people. They love to travel both internationally and domestically. They were experienced travelers. And in 2016, they decided to do this big trek kind of across Africa. So they had been hiking and exploring and they'd been on these safaris and they were just, they had spent, you know, two or three weeks kind of traveling all around South Africa. And they decided that they were going to end their vacation in the tropical island nation of Seychelles, which is, it's about 900 miles off the coast of South Africa. And it's just kind of like these really beautiful islands and they're known for their really high-end luxury resorts. So the two sisters decide that this is where they're gonna end their trip. And they arrived in the Seychelles September 21st. What year was this? 2016. Okay. Yeah. Annie and Robin, those are their names. So Annie's 37, Robin's 42, both in excellent shape. You know, they obviously, they just gotten back from doing these really intense excursions through Africa. So they come to the Seychelles, they're gonna relax, they wanna end their vacation. And on the morning of September 22nd, their bodies were found in their room. They were both on the same bed fully dressed, but just, they were dead. And there wasn't any sign of struggle. There wasn't any sign of uh, assault of any kind. Was there any signs like to the bodies, like of cause of death, like they were stabbed or there was just two dead bodies? No, there were just two dead bodies laying on, laying on the bed. So obviously, of course, this feels like what's going on, right? So as the police start doing some investigations, they find that on the day of September 22nd, a lot of the hotel staff reports to them that the girls were drinking heavily, that they were kind of drinking throughout the day, and that around eight o'clock at night, their personal butler had to help them, physically help them back to their room. Okay, so that's what, the day before they're found dead? Yes. And so this is also like some tropical resort, right? So probably everybody's drinking. Oh, I'm sure. Okay. So it wasn't like they were just, oh, look at these drunkard Americans. Like everybody there was drinking. Everybody there was, you know, day drinking even. Right. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to, uh, make a quick correction here. They actually arrived at the resort on September 15th. So they had been there for a couple days. Okay. You know, they had been kind of hanging out and doing, hanging in the water, hanging by the beach, doing the relaxation thing. The staff knew them. They, this is one of those super fancy resorts. So you get like your own personal butler. And, you know, I'm talking like this room is $2,000 a night. Like this is a high end luxury resort. So yeah. So the, on the, the evening of the 21st, their personal butler 
escorts them to their room. And the interesting thing that I have found is that in all of the research I've been doing, there's not a lot of additional interview material from the butler. But he's the guy who's been hanging out with them theoretically days and nights for five days or whatever you said, right? You'd right. Think, you'd think they'd want to know because if anybody, he's going to know them best. Exactly. So I thought, so that was just one thing that has kind of popped up for me in this story is like, okay, why are, why isn't there more information or more reporting about what the butler had to say? So that happens at eight o'clock at night. He says he puts them in their room at around eight o'clock at night on the 21st. So the next morning around 8 a.m., he comes back to check in on them, see if they're ready for breakfast. And there's no response, right? I look, it appears that the girls are still sleeping. Uh, he leaves and then comes back to the room a little bit later, kind of early afternoon between 11 and 12, and notices that everything again still looks exactly the same as he left it. At this point, he goes and gets the hotel manager so that they can go kind of into the room and, and check the room. So at this point, the hotel manager comes out, they enter the room, and this is where they find the two women on the bed fully dressed with no sign of any kind of foul play or wrongdoing, just two supposedly healthy women in their 30s and 40s that just died. Okay, so they're um, fully dressed, right? Are they in pajamas mm -hmm. or are they wearing their outfit that they were out the day before in? Or do you not know? In all of the research that I did, I could not find anything that uh, talked about what they were wearing. My assumption is that they probably were wearing whatever they had been wearing the day before. Okay, that's interesting. So, um, of course, the Seychelles, you know, authorities, they contact the next of kin, which happens to be these women's uh, brother and his mother. They fly out to South Africa and, you know, they want to be there to aid the investigation or, you know, see what's going on. It's always really complicated when you're an American and something happens to you in a foreign country. It's really difficult to try and work out all of the logistics to get the bodies back. So it was really important that the brother and the mother went out there. From everything that I've read, they, they didn't have anything bad to say about how the government was handling things. So... Sometimes when I read these stories, I wonder, like, I think it's kind of natural to wonder, like, oh, well, do they have the same kind of capabilities as maybe like a more developed country? The, the brother and the mother both said that they felt that they handled the case really well. Okay. Because I was also um, thinking that at a $2,000 a night resort, that resort wants things taken care of as quickly as possible because you're going to start affecting tourism and they're making money. Absolutely. So what actually ended up happening was they took the bodies and actually sent them to the mainland or to a, a different island. Sorry, not the mainland, but to a different island within the Seychelles to handle the autopsies and the additional investigation. Because where this resort was, it's just this little tiny island. You know, they're not prepared for this. After they do the autopsy report on the two women, it is found that they died from pulmonary edema, which is basically having fluid in your lungs. And then Annie, who was the younger one, she was also, um, they also 
found through the autopsy that she had cerebral edema, edema. Is that how you say that? <laughs> edema, yeah, so swelling edema. on her okay. brain. Right, so fluid in the brain. Other than that, there, I mean, there's no visible signs of inner injury. I thought that that was just incredibly interesting. And the police at the time had said that the autopsies were conducted by a, you know, forensic pathologist um, on this neighboring island. And at the time that they had done the initial autopsy and found these things, that's when they decided to go ahead and, and send in a toxicology report. On so, their blood or like the fluid in their lungs? So the toxicology report was done specifically on the blood. Okay. What's really interesting is that the, the two people would die at the same time with really similar circumstances, which, are really, which is pretty uncommon. I'm not a doctor, but <laughs> uh, pulmonary edema just doesn't necessarily come out of nowhere. No, it's usually from like congestive heart failure or something that you've had for many, many years. You're probably well over 60, not 35, and you've been sick. So the fact that it was acute and it came on suddenly was probably why it led to like cardiac arrest and that's how they died. But like you said, for two people in the same room to both get it, like that's insane. So a couple theories that were kind of swirling around this is that it could have been something environmental or it could have potentially been some sort of infection, like something that they had picked up um, during their travels in South Africa. But I think if it was environmental, it would have been more people would have had it, right? You're at this little resort. I'm sure it's not that big. So you'd think more people would have had it. Infection though, you're right. Like if they were in some safari and they picked up something from even an animal, some zoonotic infection, that would definitely do it. Right. Which is kind of fed into, you know, why they wanted to remove the bodies and have the autopsies done on a, on a neighboring island. So I think that there was some concern that this could spread kind of throughout the whole resort. When the toxicology reports ended up coming back, they found that there was alcohol, obviously, in the blood system, and then also codeine, which didn't really support a lot of people. A lot of people, there had been speculation around that this was a cocaine overdose and that it was a cocaine induced edema. They didn't find cocaine in their blood system. And my understanding is that that would have to be like a pretty enormous amount of cocaine done in a really short period of time to bring on cerebral and pulmonary edema. Yeah, you would think so, right? That's, that's crazy. So the one theory that kind of seemed the most plausible to me was that they had been, you know, exploring, they had been doing these big hikes and these big mountains and that they um, had come down too fast, almost, it, it was, it's almost similar to, um, you have to decompress kind of when you're climbing these big mountains and you have to allow your, the oxygen levels in your blood to stabilize. So kind of like when you go like diving, right? And you get the bends when you come up. Exactly. And so this can kind of happen in reverse as you know, when you, if you come down from a mountain too fast, there is a risk of developing some sort of edema. But the fact that they had already been back from this excursion, that they'd already been on the island for a couple days, 
it just seemed to me that if that was going to happen, it would have, there would have been an onset differently that it wouldn't have onset and killed them both at the exact same time. Exactly. So this is one of those unsolved, even though that there is, even though that the official report from the, you know, the, the nation of Seychelles, the official report is that, you know, the pulmonary and cerebral edema was brought on by heavy alcohol and prescription drug interactions. And they didn't have any prescriptions in their room for like codeine or some kind of cough syrup. So all of the reports that I found did say that there was medication in the room, but nothing was ever listed. It never listed what medications were removed from the room. Which you would think if they did find like codeine cough syrup, they would have done because then they could point to, hey, this is exactly what happened. The girls were, you know, drinking and what is it? Dirty Sprite, right? Mixing your codeine cough syrup with Sprite. That way they could pinpoint it and blame it on the girls instead of, well, what if it was your bartender at this resort that's giving it out? So I did do some research into that as well, because there has been multiple, multiple cases of, you know, tourists going to these countries, especially more underdeveloped countries in Thailand and in South Asia, you have had vacationers or tourists die from having their drinks spiked with all kinds of things from fentanyl to basically antifreeze to different kind of Uh, illegal drugs or some sort of combination that causes you to to die. Again, the fact that they were not the only people at this resort, this was not something that happened to anybody else. And from the toxicology report, it didn't seem like there there wasn't anything real sketchy. Yeah. And it just makes you wonder. So if you drank enough codeine to get a hit on your tox screen, that would be a lot of drinks. Like, and for it to cause, you know, pulmonary edema. So you would think that somebody else in the resort, if it was going to be like spike drinks, somebody else would have at least got sick. Yeah. It's very interesting that even though there are many things that can cause acute pulmonary edema, again, the fact that two people at this, you know, seemingly at the exact same time laying in the same bed. It's just, there's just a lot of odd circumstances around this. Right. Um, Like even if you were super drunk and whatever, if your sister becomes unresponsive, you're going to pick up that phone and call the front desk at the very least. Right. Absolutely. So you would think there would have been like a help call or something, but for both of them to just sit there and die like you said, that's, they couldn't have died at the same time. That's scary. It is. And just because I find these kind of things so fascinating, I, I dug a little deeper. I went a little, a little deeper into the interwebs. There's a whole conspiracy platform around the financial industry and people that work in the financial industry and how there's been all of these kind of unexplained deaths and disappearances of bankers and other people kind of high end in the, in the financial industry. So uh, Um, going down my research wormhole, it was brought up that maybe, you know, Ann and Robin, because they worked in that sector, were kind of part of this, you know, bigger 
conspiracy Illuminati type thing. So from our Q&A episode, the unsolved mystery that I once solved about the guy who supposedly jumped off the roof, he -hmm. was a freaking investment banker. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so that too (laughs) was one of the things, if you watch that um, unsolved mysteries episode, that they were like, well, what was he handling at work? And could it have been work related? So that's very interesting. And, and you know, and none of the conspiracy websites that I kind of stumbled across that these two sisters were mentioned on, nothing really held any kind of, you know, water for me. Exactly. It all seemed a little far-fetched, but I find it very interesting that there is a whole, you know, sector of the conspiracy theory kind of fan base that you know this there is a whole thing around people that work in the financial industry and and these disappearances I just thought that was kind of a little side note that was funny and interesting it totally is I love it so yeah so uh the moral of the stories that was it (laughs) well yeah okay so yeah so that's kind of it because like I said, the the Seychelles authorities have gone ahead and wrapped this up. But for me, there still is a lot of unanswered questions. I hate unsolved mysteries. That's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> and by hate, I mean I love them. But yeah. Oh, goodness. And one of the things that I did do, this is so funny, uh, Anne, who lived in Denver, she actually belonged to an ice skating like a synchronized ice skating team. And uh, right, do you live near Denver? I do live near Denver. So I actually reached out and called the no, ice skating. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I'm playing, I, I'm playing little, uh, little detective here. Um, but unfortunately, nobody that I spoke to at the school had known Anne. Okay. So there wasn't, I wasn't able to get any additional Dang information it. about Anne. But that would have been very interesting. Boo. (laughs) The the thing that really touched my heart the most about this story is that I went, as I was sneaking around social media a bit, I did find their brother's Facebook page. And the the banner picture is of him and his two sisters. So so sad. Oh. I just, for me, it's always like, you know, these are interesting stories, but at the end of it, there is somebody that, you know, that misses these people, just like your story and and the the husband and dad that had to carry on. Yeah, it's so sad. So you have to be careful when you go on vacation. Yes. Sometimes that's not good enough. Yeah. The the moral of the story is um, don't go on vacation. No. Just stay in your room. Don't leave it. So um, I used a bunch of articles for my story. That was what I did my most research on. Um, I'll put them up on our show notes on the website. So you can go check out um, that reporter's seven-part series on the murders and how he won his Pulitzer for it because it is a very amazing series of articles. That's excellent. And I will make sure to put up all of the the articles that I used, as well as conspiracy theory pages I found around, you know, the banking industry. (laughs) Nice. So we can all go dive down that rabbit hole, right? Sure. In all of our free time. All right. Well, what's our theme for next week? Our theme for next week is, I don't know. What is it? (laughs) 
national parks. <laughs> national parks. Awesome. Well, I'm excited about national parks. There's some crazy things that happen. Me too. All right. Well, you can visit us on social media. And like I said, our website, the number two girls and a campfire.com. Um, I think that's it. We'll see you next week. Be around, be around the campfire. The campfire.